When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth from Forbes. And I am Sam Abu Al Samad from Navigant Research. So, welcome to episode 115 of Wheel Bearings. Uh, we're going to talk about Goodwood, we're going to talk about the Hyundai Palisade. We're going to touch on a few other things, but the first thing we talk about every week is what we're driving. And Sam, you managed to get into a pretty nice chunk of British motoring uh, this week. I I did. Uh, I had a chance to spend a week with the brand new 2020 Range Rover Evoque, which uh, had its debut uh, back in February at the Chicago Auto Show. Um, And, you know, so this, this this is Land Rover's, smallest vehicle that they sell in North America. Actually, it's the smallest vehicle they sell anywhere. Um, you know, it's the second generation of the Evoque. And, you know, when it first when we first saw it back in February, or actually I guess we saw it before the, the auto show, you know, it immediately, you know, it was clear, yeah, it, look, it looks just like an Evoque, you know. And, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's an evolutionary design in a, in a really good way. And I think I, I touched on this when I talked a few weeks ago about the... Uh, the Range Rover plug-in hybrid I was driving. You know, Range Rover in particular as a brand, it, it, from a design standpoint, it's a very interesting brand because you know, going back to the very first Range Rover in, what, 1969 or 70 when it debuted, yeah. and you know, if you look through to today, in, in a way it's very much like 911. You know, it's, it's an evolutionary design where even that original one, that very first Range Rover, looked surprisingly modern, especially by British standards of standards. Of the day. <laughs> yeah. Especially considering what it, what it had underneath it, which was just yeah. basically, you know, all, right. the, but, but all the, the running gear. Yeah. But the, the design, you know, looked surprisingly modern. It was a fairly contemporary design that, that, you know, still doesn't look, you know, that old, even if you look at one today. No, it was certainly like timeless and classic. I mean, yeah. I'm having a little trouble seeing through the evoke to that original Range Rover? Uh, Yeah, well, I'm not necessarily comparing that to the original Range Rover, although I'll I'll get to that in a second. But, um, you know, each generation of Range Rover has has been a fairly subtle but, you know, progressive change. And you can see that lineage from the Range Rover of today back to that that first one. And, you know, it's a design it's a it's a design language that has held up surprisingly well. And there's elements of that in the in the Evoque, although the Evoque, obviously, because it's a much smaller vehicle, it's got very different proportions. You know, it's it's you know a lower roof vehicle. You know, the the big Range Rovers are tall roof vehicles. They have a very tall greenhouse to them, 
and you know this the the evoke and the velar as well the mid-sized velar um you know have don't have that same kind of profile they have a, a much lower roof profile but you know there's elements of the the design language you know the glass that looks like it wraps all the way around the greenhouse um you know and elements of of the lower body that um you can you can see that that family dna in there they don't look exactly the same but the, and and there's certainly a lot more connection between the velar and the evoke um but there there's definitely a family dna and you know going from the first generation to the second generation evoke at first glance you know it looks more like a refresh than a complete redesign but when you start looking at it in more detail you see a lot you see a lot of details that have obviously changed quite a bit you know the the body sides, um, the, 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 character, the horizontal character lines on the body sides are not as pronounced as before. It's, it's more subtle. The, the, the door, it's got the, the retracting door handles. Oh, like from the, the VLAR, yeah. You know, yeah. So the, do, the body looks, you know, the door handles are flush in the bodywork. Um, you know, everything is a little bit smoother, a little bit cleaner, a little more refined. You know, and, you know, it, it's a very contemporary looking design, but, it, you know, it's also because it's a smaller vehicle. It has very different proportions from the Velar and from the, the big Range Rover. You know, yeah, but, you know, more brutish looking. Yeah. And I, I, they, they're doing the same kind of thing at their level that uh, Jeep manages to pull off uh, at, you know, its space in the market where you look at the um, the Compass Cherokee, Grand Cherokee there's definitely a resemblance all the way through, uh, but they're not exactly the same. And, and it's the same, same thing, like depending on what the, the wheelbase and the platform is, the proportions have to mm -hmm. accommodate that. Uh, and, and they, they do what they do. And, and Range Rover clearly does the same thing. Like I'm looking at, at the uh, evoke now and it, it, like, it's very clearly a Range Rover. Uh, the, and it, you know, the, the Velar, the first time I saw the Velar, I was like, Wait, which model is that? Is that the Range Rover Sport? I, I didn't realize what I was looking at until I looked at the badge. And I think that's a good thing that it's, you know, it's a Range Rover, but you don't know which one it is. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a look that, that works really well, you know, and then, you know, the, the Land Rover models, the Discovery and, and the upcoming Defender are obviously, you know, they, they are, you know, they're, at least with the, the Discovery, there's more, there's a bit more of a tie-in to the the Range Rovers, but they have a a little bit different look, especially in the greenhouse. Um, you know, you don't have that full wraparound glass kind of effect. Uh, but I I think you know overall, I think this the design works really well. Yeah, I agree. Um, I hope that it uh, works better actually than the original. The original Evoke was so stunning on the outside; it really brought that show stand thing to the street I, re I remember when it was the show car and then when it, it debuted uh as the actual evoke um it looks great on the outside but it was so disappointing to drive that <laughs> original evoke it was you know it's hard to see out of it i didn't find it that comfortable the powertrain was kind of unrefined uh to me it just it felt like a you know a, a ford escape <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the new Evoke is definitely much much better in that respect. Uh, you know, it's got the new Ingenium four cylinder engine. Well, let me let me uh, touch on the the interior. You know, you mentioned visibility. Um, you know, obviously the the kind of chopped roof look, the chopped roof profile of the Evoke does have an impact on visibility, especially to the back. However, um, they do now offer 
what they call the the clear view mirror, uh, which is the you know the camera mirror system, the same thing that you have uh, that the GM offers on several models, including you know the Cadillac CT6 and the, the Chevy Bolt, um, which it has a camera that's uh, mounted in the, the the back of the shark fin antenna on the roof at the back edge of the roof, and it uh, it projects on the the mirror itself. So you can use the mirror as a standard reflective mirror. Or, you know, if you flip the little lever on the bottom like we used to do to, to go from, uh, you know, for night driving, you know, for the headlights coming from behind you to dim that. Um, instead, that flips it to an LCD that's embedded in the mirror and you see the, the display from that camera. And, you know, in the, with, with the mirror, you know, because you have a relatively short, vertically short, uh, you know, rear glass in the, in the rear, in the tailgate, Plus, you have the headrests from the back seat sticking up and the pillars in the back. The visibility straight out the back is, frankly, pretty bad if you're looking through the mirror. But if you use the, the camera, now you have a completely unobstructed view um, all, the way, all the way around the back. And it's, it's vastly superior uh, than trying to use the, the mirror so you can actually see what's behind you. Um, and then, the, you know, the rest of the interior, you know, they've basically taken the same kind of uh, same kind of look that's in the in the Velar and in the Jaguar I-Pace uh, with the dual screen setup uh, that you know that those vehicles have. You know, and the Velar's got the the top screen. You know, flips up a little bit, flips up a little more vertically when it's off. You know, the screen kind of lays back flush in the dashboard when you turn it on. It pops up a little more vertically, uh, and you've got your infotainment in the upper screen that's up on the dash. You know, so your your maps and your audio system. Controls and everything are in there, and then the the lower screen is for your climate controls and seats and and the the vehicle controls. You know to switch drive modes. Um, it's you know it does at least have you know rotary control rotary knobs for um, adjusting the temperatures and adjusting the 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 seat temperatures as well as for the volume and, and tuning. Um, but the, the displays are these high gloss displays. I was going to say that it's very pretty in pictures. Yeah. And I'm it's looking at that going, not, there's so much shiny stuff there. Yeah. Too, too much, too much shininess there. You know, when in bright sunlight, you know, if the sun's shining in from the side, you do get some glare off of it. And worse, if like me, you wear polarized sunglasses, you get that rainbow effect on there, which, you know, I, I, you know, I swear every automaker needs to force their, their, um, their designers, the interior designers, whoever's selecting those, those screens to drive around for a month or even a week with polarized sunglasses on all the time, you know, before they're allowed to sign off on approving those displays. Um, you know, this, this is a real serious issue. Uh, and, you know, Toyota is terrible at this, you know, almost all of Toyota's screens have this problem. Um, same goes, you know, same goes for Range Rover and Jaguar. You know the the interface is okay. It's not. Yeah, how is okay. their in, infotainment? Because it, like it's the what does they call it? The, a Jaguar calls it like in control touch pro or whatever. Yeah, I don't, they they call it touch pro here too. In control. Yeah, so. it, it's it's the, it's the same system, same interface. Um, you know, it's okay. It's you know, it's not terrible. Uh, it's it is a touch screen, which you know, as I as I am want to say, is is a bad thing in any car that you have to drive. Um, but um, you know it's it's not the it's not the best and it's not the worst. It's kind of middle of the pack. Um, it does support Android Auto and Apple CarPlay, uh, which is good. Uh, so you know you can you can just use those if you prefer. 
which I did. Um, and then, you know, the, um, the, the lower screen, um, you know, is a, is a fairly simple, clean interface, you know, a couple of tabs to switch between controlling your seats, controlling, you know, your, your basic climate control, you know, where do you want the, the air to flow and, um, you know, which drive mode you want to select. So, you know, it's things that you're, you're typically not going to use as frequently. Um, and because it does have two nice big round knobs for the temperatures, um, you know, if you, if all you want to do is, you know, adjust the temperature up or down, just, you know, give the knob a twist and you don't have to mess around with the touchscreen. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. Everybody's trying to do something that is both visually distinctive for that wow factor on the showroom floor. And then also isn't completely terrible to use. Yeah. <laughs> so they'll, they'll either figure it out or they'll all come together and standardize or they'll be forced to standardize. I, I honestly think those last two are not actually going to happen. Um, they'll, they'll just, they'll figure something out eventually, or we'll just learn to adapt to terrible interfaces like we have in so many other places. Yeah. Well, uh, um, yeah, unfortunately I think it's probably going to be the latter, you know, yeah. for, for some reason people just seem to like, um, they, you know, like these terrible interfaces. So, uh, you know, especially with such a high style brand, you know, I think the pain is part of the experience. Yeah. I mean, people complain about the interfaces, but then they still want touchscreens. You know, and, you know, the, a big part of why the interfaces are bad is because they're touchscreens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's and, you know, I don't know what the psychology behind that is. Like, oh, it looks so sleek, you know, and it's like, yeah, sleek is cool when it, when it, it helps you. But sometimes sleek is not good. Sometimes you want some buttons. Yeah. and stuff but now i'm gonna sound like an old man so i'm gonna stop uh okay. but so, um so let me let me which, get to the let me get to the powertrain you, yeah you, which you did you have the s or the se um i had the well actually it's the um, or is it one powertrain for both it, it's the same engine they both have the uh the two liter ingenium four-cylinder uh turbocharged uh but you have there's the the p250 or the p300 uh variants uh and i had the p300 uh, in the HSE trim level. And the, the difference between the two is the P300 has, uh, it's the 48 volt mild hybrid system that's added oh, okay. there. Uh, so that, that bumps the power up from about 250 horsepower to 296. Um, you know, which is, and it's, it's noticeable. I mean, it, you know, it's a strong engine and, and that, that engine, that two liter ingenium four cylinder that they have in a whole bunch of Jaguar and Land Rover products now is, is an excellent engine. Yeah. It's quite, it's much more refined than the old four cylinder that was in the, the original Evoque. Um, which know, was so, not refined. <laughs> no, it was not refined. This, this is a good engine. You know, it's got plenty of power, plenty of torque, um, you know, excellent drivability. Um, interesting thing with the 48 volt, uh, mild hybrid system is they have clearly tuned this so that the, the hybrid functionality pretty much only adds that extra 50 horsepower. Um, and some extra torque, but doesn't really do anything positive for your fuel economy, uh, because both the mild hybrid and the the standard version um, are both both have an EPA combined rating of 23 miles per gallon. Um, the mild hybrid gets 21 in the city versus 20 for the, the the base version, but it only gets 26 on the highway versus 27 for the base version. Um, so you know, essentially, it's a wash between the two. Uh, you do, you know, you, as a mild hybrid, um, it does, you know, shut down the engine and it'll, it'll shut, it can shut down the engine when you're decelerating, you know, at speeds as high as 11 miles an hour. 
um, and, you know, keep it off, uh, you know, when, when you're, you know, so that rather than coming on while you're sitting there at an intersection, um, you know, when you still have your foot on the brake, uh, it can keep it off longer so that even, you know, it, it not, it's not until you actually start to move that it'll restart the engine. Yeah, it'll, it it'll, must it'll feel start to move on electricity and then, uh, restart the engine. Yeah. It feels um, a lot smoother, right? Like yeah, it's, it's much yeah. smoother, but even in those, in those instances where it does come on, you know, while you're stopped and your foot is on the brake, it's also much smoother restart. Uh, it's barely noticeable, uh, in part because the 48 volt, um, system, it's a belted starter generator has a lot more power to, to crank the engine. And it, so it cranks it much faster. Um, and you really don't notice that you, you'll notice that you can, you can hear it when it starts up, but you don't really feel that shutter that you get with a lot of stop-start systems. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say it's, you know, it's overall a benefit, even though you're not really gaining any fuel economy, you are getting some improved performance out of it um, and, and some other advantages out of it. So in terms of uh, your overall assessment, um, you know, this is a very crowded segment now, the, the premium compact I guess it's an SUV. So the, the premium compact SUV that's going to be used like a crossover hatchback. <laughs> um, does it do enough to really differentiate itself, I guess? Uh, you know, it certainly looks like a, land, uh, a Range Rover. Um, it seems like it's dressed up inside like a Range Rover. But that was really the biggest issue I had with the, the, the original Evoque was like it didn't it didn't feel like it other than the badge. And yeah. you had that issue with like the GLK and the X3 when they originally debuted. So we're into the second generation now. Have they managed to, to really make it feel like it belongs? Yeah, it, uh, it absolutely feels like it belongs in the Range Rover family. Um, you know, there's, you know, everything about it is better than the original. You know, it's, I'd say, you know, this is one of the best looking vehicles in the segment. Um, you know, it certainly drives well, um, you know, uh, on the road, I didn't, you know, didn't really have an opportunity to go off-roading with it, but, you know, as a, as a Range Rover, you know, like Jeeps, you know, they, they do have good off-road capability. Um, and, you know, is it worth $67,000? I mean, you know, you, they start at 42, um, you know, which, you know, is not cheap, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not crazy. Um, and, uh, the, the R-Dynamic, uh, version, which is what I had, starts at 40, uh, 47, uh, just shy of 47. Um, you know, this one was pretty much loaded with just about every available option. So it was an R dynamic, you know, all, you know, four wheel drive, HSE, P300. Um, you know, it's, it, it had, it had all the goodies and, and, and I, I definitely appreciated the cooled seats, you know, when we had 90 degree and 90% humidity, days uh, for several in a row uh so that was good um so you know i would say if, if you're shopping in this segment you know for for a premium compact utility um you know if you're looking at a bmw or an audi or a mercedes that's you know comparably equipped you're probably in that same price you're in that same price range anyway um so it's you know it's, it's i'd say it's you know it if you're if you're looking for a vehicle in that segment, it's it a is one value. Yeah, <laughs> it it's, is it's one. A, it is one, and it's a it's a it's it's no it's no more ridiculously priced than its competition. Let's well, it yeah, I mean, in this you know this segment, the stuff that really really stands out, I think maybe the Volvo XC40 is the most distinctive. 
uh, I don't know that it quite reaches the same sort of rarefied pricing uh, heights that the the Evoke can can get to. Yeah, yeah, the Volvo doesn't quite get there, but um, you know, you you can certainly get a very nicely equipped um, Evoke, you know, for under fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, so yeah. It, you know, we're we're talking luxury cars, so luxury cars are going to have a luxury price, and that's it, yeah, it's you know, it it is something that it fits in its family. It looks very distinctive. It doesn't look like everything else out there. So it's, it's an option. And I, you know, I'm, I, I hope that, uh, our friend Stuart Shore drops one in the new England fleet soon. So I can, I can also <laughs> try it. Um, it looks a little stubby, but it also, it does, it looks like a Rover. It also, yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I think the purport, the overall proportions look, you know, work really well, you know, especially when you see it in person, you know, I think it's, it's got a nice, chunky look to it um you know that that looks like an suv you know that you know can can go anywhere you know but it it's you know got that sportiness to it as well that that the the other range rovers don't have it also kind of looks like a kia soul um no i mean the new soul maybe it's a stretch uh, yeah it's a stretch okay um you know the (laughs) The, it's taller than the sole, you know. It's got a higher belt line. Um, you know, the, the proportions look quite different. Yeah, that's when you that, when you see it. It's not um, as upright for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. The the wheel, you know, the wheels are a lot bigger. Um, yeah, you're, you're not going to mistake this for a sole. Okay, I, I, well, you might mistake it for a sole. I, I don't think anybody else will. All right, I got away with not insulting uh, Rover too badly. So uh, <laughs> I spent some time in a couple of Volkswagens this week, uh, or the last couple of weeks. I had the Jetta GLI that I touched on, I think, the last uh, podcast we did just briefly. And, I, you know, I will touch on it again just briefly. So it was the GLI S, which is a new model of the GLI, I think a new trim level for the GLI this year where it's – it's the cheapest way to get the GLI, and it feels like it's the cheapest way to get the GLI. <laughs> like, and so I, and it's a weird contrast because I had the the Tiguan uh, right after that, and so you know you look around the interior of the Jetta, and it, it's fine, uh, especially given the price spread of the Jetta. It's, it's such an affordable car, and it's a good car for for the money. It's, it's you know pretty. It's a good size for its segment. It offers a lot of value. It still drives like a Jetta, so it has some some discipline and a solid platform because um, it's MQB now. Uh, you know, there's not really much to complain about there. The uh, things you can see when you look around the interior, there's lots of hard plastic. Like it's like almost reminiscent of '70s style vacuum formed. <laughs> stuff not not or, or say a, a 2012 uh jetta you know when they first launched the uh the previous generation and and decontinented it uh, yeah you know almost beyond recognition i mean it's not it's not out of place though given where the car is in the market it's just i'm a little surprised that you can see it and maybe so i you know maybe it's me knowing what i'm looking at more so than sort of Joe Joe Blow consumer. Um, but I look at it and I see like, okay, these pieces were clearly not that expensive to make. They don't look bad. They don't feel bad, but the interior is to me, it's not, it's not, not a GTI in that sense, you know? And, but again, this is a GLIS. So it didn't have 
nicer seats. You know, it was just sort of like standard cloth seats. It was very comfortable. Um, it had a DSG uh, with the the turbo engine, and so it was it was pretty pretty lively. It did did seem like it ran out of breath uh, after a little while. So it was just good around town, like on back roads. But if you're gonna use it to sort of rocket up a, a on ramp or something, it doesn't have a huge amount of top end. It's it's not a deep breather. Um, but the chassis dip- discipline that you'd expect from a GLI is there. It's it's a good car to drive, and it's a good car to drive on a curvy road in, in a in a deliberate fashion, shall we say? I don't want to encourage anybody to uh, <laughs> to do anything untoward. It also has the the new. Our listeners would never do anything. No, exactly. We're very very conservative folks here. We we have a very responsible uh, audience. Yes, absolutely. Um, we, we go and we, we read to children at schools and we, I don't, I don't know. We, we help the elderly cross the street anyway. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a good looking car. Uh, I, I liked the way it looked. Um, I, again, I thought it was comfortable. It's a good size. It has a roomy back seat, really good trunk. Um, the, the price is, is decent. You know, this one didn't have a, a sunroof. It had, uh, sort of the, the, most basic version of their latest infotainment, which has a larger screen, but it's also like sleek. Like, like we were talking about the, the, um, the Range Rover, it's a, it's a shiny screen and you know, there wasn't nav or anything. So the functions are, it's the, the menu structure is a little bit crappy, but, uh, it's better, I think, than earlier VW systems, and the things that we missed for years and years in VW are here. You know, like a USB port that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of some proprietary connector that you could only get an adapter to, I think a lightning or, right, or maybe even an old uh, uh, old thirty pin Apple connector. Yeah, you you'd string together. Well, you basically you'd, you'd go and you'd you'd buy the if you just need it for power, you'd buy the lighter thing that plugs in, but. Um, yeah, so it's a good car. I just, I, I, I feel like while it's a good Jetta to drive in terms of being a driver's car, it's, it's still not a GTI. And maybe that complaint disappears a little bit once you, you climb the, the GLI trim level and you, you get one that really is a GTI with a trunk. But for whatever reason, the, the GTI just leaves a, a better impression on me. And so if I'm spending my money, I'm, I'm going with a GTI and I'm going with a manual. So there, there's that. I don't, don't like the DSG as good as it is. It's still like, I find it kind of snatchy in certain situations, like, uh, parking lots and stuff where I just don't like the way it behaves. And I, I find it's kind of uninvolved. So I'd, I'd rather shift from myself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the GLI and then the, the follow-up with the Tiguan was was interesting too because the Tiguan again this was an SE so it's not the highest trim level but this is it really reminded me of a '90s BMW and and I got the, I, I realized that's sort of the impression that the the GLI left too is they they both just feel like you know like the E36 when it first came out it wasn't a luxury car in the luxury sense. You know, it was definitely a premium car, and and Volkswagens always tend to feel like they are more premium, I guess, than than their their price usually. That's on they they have been doing nice interiors and and just solid platforms and and good good manners for 
20 plus years now. So I always expect that when I get in, it's going to feel like most of an Audi. <laughs> and, uh, but the, what I liked about it was the ergonomics other than the touchscreen were, were simple in both. And the, the, the Tiguan especially, where it had, you know, leatherette seats that were very comfortable and I could dial myself in pretty nicely. Um, it was really unperturbed by um, road conditions. It soaked up bumps, but it also wasn't sloppy. Uh, it, again, it wasn't like the most powerful thing out there. Uh, it, it, I think they actually both share the same, same force. It's the, like, it's the EA 888, um, which is, yeah, all, all the current VWs have that in there now. Yeah. So they just, they basically, I think they turn the wick on the turbo up and down, depending on which model. Pretty, it is. pretty much. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, you've got versions of it that produce, I think as little as 160 horsepower, 170, whatever. Yeah. In the base take Yeah, it felt like what I had. <laughs> all the way up to, you know, the 300 horsepower uh, Golf R. Yeah. Well, I, the TIG one could have used the 300 horsepower engine. I mean, if it's me. But, uh, you know, they just like, the, the TIG one didn't feel as cheap inside as the, the Jetta GLI. The TIG one, the materials and stuff were nice. The design is really nice. There's ergonomics are very good and straightforward. Um, and I was impressed that within that footprint, they've managed to fit three rows of seats although the the third row is slightly useless yeah it's, it's slightly dismal the dog liked it uh, i sat back there and there, it's there's not a whole lot of space um and it, and for you to say that you know yeah that is, i'm comfortable is just about anywhere yeah it, it, access to it kind of sucks too and that's i think that's one of the things like even if you had a better third row situation getting into it is just not good in something on on a wheelbase that's that's more typical of a, a two row vehicle, you know. And once you add some wheelbase to it, it's just going to be crappy to climb in from the back seat. You know, they they slide forward as much as possible. Well, and, and this is and the, the the US Tiguan now is already the long wheelbase version because they overseas, particularly for China, they sell two different variants of it. There's the one that we get. And then there's a shorter wheelbase version, which is roughly the same wheelbase as the the first generation Tiguan. Uh, right, the Tiguan. Yeah, what so do they call it now? The Tiguan Sport or Tiguan Classic? Limited. Limited. limited yeah. I, think, I think. I think you're. I think you're like right. That. I think it's Tiguan Limited. Which, it, like, I think that's. I get why they do it, but that decision just seems wacky to me. Like, don't because they look so similar. Um, the new one looks better. It's definitely a little crisper, but they do really. They still looks like a Tiguan. Well, I, th- I, th- I think the you know the proportions of the long the new long wheelbase Tiguan, um, to my eye, looks a little it looks a little odd because all of the all of the extra length is in the rear doors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it does look a little odd. The the other thing that you know when I drove the Tiguan last year that that kind of bothered me about it. Um, is the steering wheel position? What, uh, what did you? Yeah, what, the, the, the the it seemed it, it seemed to me like the the steering column was tilted up at a higher angle than it is in other MQB vehicles like the the current Golf and Jetta and and even the the Atlas. Um, and you know when I when I tilted it down, you know so like the the the, the fixed part of the steering column seems like it's tilted up and mounted higher than it is in the other ones. So when I tilt, when I put the, you know, put the steering wheel down to a, a comfortable position, it was, it, it still felt too high for me, but it was also cutting off half of the instrument. Cluster. Yeah. I, I ran into a little bit of that. I've, I found a happy medium. Um, 
I didn't, I guess it, it didn't strike me as being so off, but I found that, you know, like, hey, I really want the wheel. It's going to, the top edge of the wheel is going to go right through the gauges. So um, I, I've, I compromised a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, I thought it looked like, you know, it's interesting you talk about the, the longer rear doors. I was looking at it out the, just out the window and it really just to me, it looks like a wagon. It's a, it's a family truckster, and that's fine. That's what it's yeah. going to be used for. But uh, they have a wagon <laughs> for now, at least. Yeah, um, you know, but the, the tick one was a little nicer. It had the carpeted door pockets that um, you find like also in the the Golf Sport wagon. Funnily enough, uh, it's just just nice touches, and it's it's good to drive. We took it into the city. We drove it into Boston on the weekend, and it, it handled those streets just fine. Um, where, you know, some cars, that can be a, te- a real test for their structural rigidity. <laughs> uh, it, it rode well. It was, it was comfortable. It, it starts to get a little, it, it starts to tell you that you should knock it off once you get it above about 80 miles an hour. Um, and, and sometimes if you're keeping up with traffic, you are, you're doing 80 miles an hour. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not, it's not luxurious, but it's not bargain basement either so i liked that sort of way it has a character about it the take one is it's not anonymous neither is the gli so you know it they're conservative it's conservatively attractive um it, it's just it's competition is so tough you know this this thing's competing directly with the rav4 and the crv i so does that third row offer an edge or not i don't I don't really think it does because if you're using the third row, you've only got 12 cubic feet of cargo space, which is not really enough unless you're just carrying people. But if you are carrying people to do things, they're going to have, you know, bags, even if it's kids going to school, right? Like you probably don't have enough space for their backpacks with 12 cubic feet um, of cargo space. You fold that third row down, you you, you get a, a better size. I think you get almost 40 cubic feet, like 37.6 cubic feet. So that's a little better. And that's really its sweet spot is use it as a two-row SUV. If you, ha- if you have a dog, the dog can get the third row when the dog comes along. Otherwise, don't bother. <laughs> um, oh. I like that it has integrated roof rails. I actually thought that was a nice touch uh, because you can then just, you just have to buy the accessory carriers versus buying the whole system so it it feels well thought out it's it's priced pretty well for being a, a family suv so it's it's a you know volkswagen flavored offering in a hugely competitive market I, I don't know how well they expect it to do but it's 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 a good refresh and um hopefully it, it can sort of just carve out its own space and and live happily but it, it definitely needs more horsepower i was i was a little let down by the engine yeah, that that is the other the other big letdown. It, it you know it it needs you know like the two hundred eleven or two hundred twenty horsepower version that you find in in the golfs and um, and other uh, variants of that two liter because it's you know it's just not enough you know especially because it you know it's it's heavier it's bigger and heavier than uh, a Jetta or, or a Golf you know it needs that extra power because otherwise you know as it is. You know, it feels weak, and then, you know, the engine's working harder, so that means that your fuel economy's not as yeah, great either. Yeah, I did not get great fuel economy. 
Um, I got I actually got really good fuel economy in the Jetta. Uh, I I think I was over thirty with that. Um, they were both also a little bit loud. Uh, you get above sixty miles an hour, especially the GLI. It's a loud car. I didn't realize how loud it was. Um, the Tig one was a little better, but didn't maybe it's just the quality of the noise too. I didn't. I did not break out the sound pressure meter. <laughs> but uh yeah the, the overall impression i got was like hey these things roar a little bit on the highway so yeah they do all right well so that about wraps it up for cars you could stay with volkswagen and we could jump into the the idr at goodwood uh they broke the record so well they broke it twice <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Goodwood Festival of Speed was last weekend, and uh, this this is an amazing event that I definitely have to get to one of these years um, before they, before it gets banned or something. Yeah, before they stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's you just get this bonkers collection of cars that that show up there, uh, you know, to be shown off and you know to to race up the hill. You know, it's a it's a little it's about a mile, just over a mile, I think, about one point two mile. Uh, hill climb course and uh, you know you get all kinds of crazy machinery there uh you know sometimes people bring out uh retired formula one cars in fact there was a uh a 90 uh, was a early or late late 80s uh mclaren mp44 uh with one of Ayrton senna's old cars uh that was there and then of course um vw brought the idr the uh the beast that uh, that tamed uh, both the Nurburgring Nordschleife and uh, the the Pikes Peak uh, hill climb last year. You know, it was the first car I think to get under under an eight minute run up Pikes Peak last year, um, and it's you know the fastest electric vehicle up there at all. You know, it's got the overall record faster than anything up Pikes Peak, um, in part at least because. You know, electric motors uh, don't suffer from oxygen starvation at high altitudes, uh, and so yeah, you're right. They um, they went out on Friday last week and set uh, I think a forty one point one time up the hill. Yeah, that was uh, um, like Saturday is, <laughs> or Saturday, <laughs> yeah, Sunday, uh, which was about half a second quicker than the previous record. And then uh, on Sunday, they went out and did it again and got 39.9 seconds, which is just insane yeah, I mean, it's, for this electric machine. So where do you come down on the, the complaints that the electric stuff is just not exciting? It doesn't have the sound and fury of a gas engine car, because I think that's just nonsense. Well, you know, there is something to the whole sound and fury thing. You know, I've been going to races for... Um, I was thinking about it earlier, in fact, because uh, I, I, I'm here in New York for the uh, the Formula E race this, this weekend. And um, I saw, I'm here, uh, here with Jaguar, I saw Bobby Rahal at, uh, at an event um, uh, there that they had earlier this evening. And uh, the very first race I ever went to was a Formula Atlantic race. It was the only one that they ever ran in my hometown of Hamilton, Ontario. Um, around the streets of downtown, and after that fiasco, they never never held another race there again. But um, <laughs> I I saw that was the first time I saw Bobby Rahal race. Um, he finished third in that race behind uh, another uh, driver you might have heard of uh, named KK Rosberg, who won the race uh, when he was still running Formula Atlantic before he went to Formula One uh, and won the world championship there. But um, uh, you know. I've been going to races for over 40 years now 
and you know something about the sound of race cars you know and these days i mostly like to watch sports car racing which is cool because you have a lot of different cars with a lot of different engines they don't all sound the same you know it's one thing to go to an f1 race or an indy car race where they pretty much all sound alike um you know at a sports car race they all sound different and, and you know I'll be watching electric cars racing around Brooklyn here um, tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, it's there's driving an, e, driving an EV, you know, with no noise, you know, can be a very nice, pleasant experience. But I, I don't know what it's going to be like actually watching them race. Well, I, I think you that know, there's certainly you, you lose some of the sensation of speed, I think, without the sound. I, see, I I know that it's it's very familiar when you've got all of those combustion events happening and an open exhaust and the, the roar of the intake noise and stuff, it, it's impressive. And I, I love it. Even just like a, it's a visceral. Experience. Absolutely. You know, like you stand, stand close to a, a race engine or, you know, something with a lot of cam what? and a, an open exhaust. I mean, you can feel the pulses. When, it's when percussive. You, when, when you, when you hear, when you hear a Trans Am Corvette blast past you, yeah. You know, 850 horsepower Trans Am Corvette, you know, or a Mustang or, or a Camaro or a Challenger, you know, that, you know, that just, you, you feel it as much as you hear it and see yeah. it. Yeah. And it, so that's, that's what we know. You know, there's been however many, what, 100 plus years of that now. Uh, probably like 130 years of that now. And then some of those, like even before that, like big stationary engines are impressive in their own right. And steam locos mm-hmm. that it all came from also impressive. So you've got all that big machinery, right? Gulping air and making explosions and stuff. But there's still that sensation of, of speed and, and a visceral uh, note to an electric motor and the gearbox working really hard. It's you, you can hear it whine. You can definitely feel all the, the energy going through it. It's not the same. I get it. It's, it's, it's different and it's not familiar, but I still think that it's, it, it's exciting. And certainly watching the car just go like a shot is, is definitely exciting. Oh, yeah. And, and I do think like well, you say, though, because it's, it's a different sound and, and quieter, it's maybe we're, we're not sensitized to that speed so you, you don't you know you don't have the engine running at 8000 rpm and and you so you don't you don't have that or that that auditory signal so you just have to recalibrate what you're looking at yeah and you know i'll i'll be interested to see what it's like to experience a race without having to wear earplugs uh yeah <laughs> yeah cuz yeah at other races you you know unless you want to go deaf you know you definitely want to wear earplugs um, so, uh, you know, the next time around we can, we can talk about it again, you know, cause I, I have not watched an EV race in person before. Um, but that's so, going to uh, change. After, <laughs> yeah. After, after this weekend, I'll, I'll let you know, we can discuss it again. Um, but you know, the, um, the IDR was not the only, uh, vehicle at Goodwood. Um, you know, Ford also introduced, uh, a Mark II version of the GT, uh, of which they're only building 45 examples. Um, and uh, this is a track-only car, so it's like the, the Ferrari, you know, uh, KXX, and, you know, some of the other track track day specials that they built, or the Porsche 935 
that they're building. In fact, the 935 was also at uh, at Goodwood, as was the new 911 RSR for for the 2019-2020 season. Um, but the the GT Mark II, you know, they've 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 shaved 200 pounds out of this thing. Um, they've bumped the power up from 650 to 700 horsepower. And essentially, given it the aero package from the the GTE Pro cars that that run at Le Mans, uh, so you've got a lot more downforce uh, than you do in a standard road going GT. Um, and you know this will be for you know people that just you know want to go out and play on the track. You won't be able to drive, you won't be able to register these for the street, um, and uh, it'll be uh, slightly more expensive than a standard GT um, at, uh, at a mere one point two million dollars. Yeah, that's still not. That's not ridiculous. I mean, no, I mean, you know, compared to some of these other track specials, it's it's not at all ridiculous. I mean, you know, all of these things cost, you know, up anywhere north of a million dollars. You know, and there's you know, plenty of other stuff that, you know, is far more expensive than this. Yeah, it's Goodwood. Like, there's a lot to see at Goodwood, too. There is there's like a rally stage. Oh yeah, there's you know lots of vintage uh, racing machines and and road cars. Uh, it's just it's it's an amazing. It's event. really it, has it sort of changed and evolved and grown in popularity over the last I don't know twenty five years or so. It's it seems like oh yeah, it's it's definitely grown. This was this year was apparently the biggest crowd ever. Um, well over a hundred thousand people there. Wow. And it, oh, uh, what did what did you think of? I want to get back to the the IDR. F- eventually um before we move off the topic but what what did you think of that di tomaso too like th- there was a little controversy where uh <laughs> i guess uh the glickenhaus uh fellas felt like they got ripped off yeah you know there there's there's a lot of um similarities in the design you know um uh, jim glickenhaus you know felt that uh it looked a little bit too much like his uh is for his Pininfarina P45, uh, which he had built a few years back on a on a Ferrari Enzo chassis, um, and it certainly bears some resemblance to that. But then again, you know the P45 was heavily influenced by the the P3 and P4 of the 1960s, which is you know why <laughs> you know why they designed it the way it did. So you know yes, it it does borrow a lot of themes, but it also it does a lot of things you know differently as well. But you know, it's it's bar, it's also borrowing from you know fifty year old machines as well. So I think it's you know it's nonsense to complain about it. <laughs> well, if it's one thing we 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 do very well in the automotive segment is uh, complain about nonsense. Uh, yes, um, we do. That's absolutely. And so true. that's what I saw with the the IDR was that there were folks saying, you know, yeah, 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 the car's fast, but. Did you see the giant diesel generator that they're charging it up with? And that's actually false. It's running um, a, uh, a synthetic fuel. The, the, the generators are modified, and they're running a synthetic fuel, and it's it's like a whole well-thought-out system from sort of start to finish to reduce the environmental impact of the whole effort. Um, I forget off the top of my head what the exact uh fuel was that it was running but it, it's it, i i don't know like i i picked up only a little bit of that but is that is that what we have to look forward to for electric car racing is, is just people 
pointing to the old trope about how it's actually dirty because of batteries and coal and diesel. Of course people are going to complain about it, just like they've always complained about ICE race cars. I mean, that's, that's nothing new. Um, let's see, I'm looking, trying to find the... Uh, oh, it's running on glycerol. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a synthetic glycerol. Uh, which is a biodiesel byproduct uh, that is uh, a bit more environmentally friendly. So it's not it's not running diesel. It's a, it's a diesel engine. I mean, it's a diesel cycle engine, but it's not using diesel diesel oil as right. a fuel. It's running glycerol. Yeah, and I mean, you can run a diesel on propane too. Like, there's it's a very Pretty flexible much, yeah. engine in that in that sense. So, um, yeah, I was just impressed with that where they they had thought about it enough to say like, yeah, we we need we also need our our uh, charging system to be less filthy <laughs> yeah and you know realistically you know when you're when you're going to an event like this um you know you need to charge these things fast and you know you you don't always have the infrastructure available to to do it on site so you you have to bring along your generators you know the same thing happened back in what 2010 when nissan first introduced the leaf uh, and it was it was up for the Car of the Year award, uh, North American Car of the Year award, and I remember you know there was there was a bit of controversy. I don't know how much it got publicized. It was mostly within the within the automotive journalist community. You know the people that were there. You know Nissan brought out a couple of Leafs for the drive program, and um, you know because they were running these things hard all day long, uh, they you know they were running out in the countryside in you know in in Michigan, uh, northwest of Ann Arbor. Where they where they do their testing day, and you know they they actually did bring a lot of diesel generator, you know a truck, uh, you know with a, a diesel generator on the back, you know a big chart, you know uh, fast char- DC fast charging unit, um, and had that sitting in the parking lot, you know the staging area, and you know after each uh, or after every couple of uh, laps around the drive route, you know they would plug it in, charge it back up, and and be ready to go for the next one, um, you know so. You know, sometimes these are the things you have to do. I mean, this is not normal operation. Right. This is not the way, you know, average people are going to be charging their vehicles. Well, yeah, and when it's a specific application like that or a specific use, like you as a, a observer or, you know, us as journalists, like we, we have to forgive some of that. Like they're giving us the opportunity to try the hardware in a really non-standard situation. Uh, and, and so they're doing what they have to do to make sure that we get the best best representation of it you know can you imagine the pr if they have given you a thing with a half dead battery and crapped out and stranded you like you know so whatever look i i if i have to bring power to a location i'll bring a generator truck and uh, so i can run lights from one of my shoots like it's not a big deal you just like yeah it's something that you do i mean in the in the grand scheme of things you know of you know the, the emissions we're putting out and the you know the things that we do that you know, that are, um, you know, ruining the, the environment, you know, this is peanuts. This is irrelevant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can talk about where the energy comes from when you're plugged into the grid, but overall, you know, it, it seems like. And, and that, you know, that actually is, uh, you know, a made a significant issue. You know, it, you know, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of complaints about, you know, are EVs actually more environmentally friendly and, you know, to a degree, it does depend on, you know, what your, what your electricity source is. You know, if you if you look at the total, you know, total life cycle emissions, of manufacturing a vehicle, you know, using it, you know, and then uh, disposing of it at the end of its life, uh, 
you know, the, the total amount of energy used and the total emissions uh, for to actually manufacture an internal combustion vehicle is generally less emissions and energy than manufacturing a battery and, and an electric vehicle. However, the electric vehicle uses so much less energy, you know, over, the, over its lifespan compared to an ICE and emits so much less or nothing that, you know, when you factor in the total life cycle, even when you're running off of coal, it's, you know, it's general, it's using less energy and emitting less, you know, over its lifespan than, um, you know, than an, an internal combustion engine vehicle. And if you're running it off of renewables, then it's way less. You know, the gap is, is a lot smaller when you're running on coal, but it, you know, it's, it's still generally better. And if you're running on solar or wind or hydro, then it's dramatically less over its lifespan. So the answer, as with everything else, is the solid. Is it depends. It depends, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a solid maybe. <laughs> well, and at least, you know, at least they're trying. With Volkswagen's emissions history over the last five years, like they need to make sure that they are on their game. So good. That, that's, that is absolutely good true. Good for them. All right. And, and, and speaking of that, maybe we should get into the next Yeah, story. absolutely. Let's move on to the next one. So Volkswagen, uh, you know, they've, they've had a little emissions issues in the past few years, um, which you know, actually worked out well for, for my, uh, my bank account <laughs> um, and funded the, the purchase of a new car to replace our old Volkswagen. But we don't need to get into that. Uh, but, you know, Volkswagen has made a huge commitment to, to building electric vehicles over the next uh, 10 years. And um, now they're they're sharing some of that with Ford. You know, Ford and Volkswagen have been in talks since uh, last fall on various um, cooperations. You know, various ways they can cooperate uh, to try to reduce their costs. And you know, earlier this year we we saw an announcement about them collaborating on commercial vehicles and trucks. And so Ford's going to get you know a pickup truck based on the next generation Ranger. And uh, you know, Ford's going to provide some um, some uh, vans uh, that are going to be badged as Volkswagens uh, going forward. And now um, Volkswagen is going to provide their MEB platform for an upcoming uh, Ford electric vehicle uh, for the European market. Um, and, uh, and that's just the beginning of the deal. Well, that doesn't seem like a bad deal for either of them. You know, these are two behemoths in the auto industry. You know, Ford and Volkswagen both have a pretty large footprint. So it's, it's not like two small players hooking up, right? It's, it's really, it is big news, but it, it really says something when two companies that could probably pull the financing together and definitely have the capabilities to engineer a platform. Ford could make their own MEB competitor. No problem. And and they are. Um, so so then why are they like what what do they get from it? I guess like it seems beneficial because they you know Volkswagen gets scale and Ford gets the platform and everybody everybody wins. But uh, if they're also sort of developing their own stuff on the side too, like why bother? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, you know why why is Ford continuing with with what they're doing? Uh, you know Ford's n Ford's not going to get this MEB vehicle. They're not going to launch this MEV, MEB vehicle till 2023. Um, and right now it's just one one model line, and it's only for the European market. 
Um, there may be there may be additional models coming, uh, but you know Ford's already well along on development of their own platform. You know that's going to launch with this Mustang inspired crossover uh, Mach E thing uh, early next well, year. And that so that'll be a but, global platform too, right? So that. That'll be a global yeah. platform. Yeah, when yeah. You, I guess um, I missed that too. Like, if it's just Europe, it doesn't does definitely doesn't make any sense to do something that's just yeah. Right. Well, except that except that MEB is a global platform. It's going to be used for vehicles that are sold in North America and in China. Right, as but well. if, if Ford can only if Ford can't have it globally, um, it, yeah, I can see how there's like okay, if it's just for Europe and it's one plat, you know, it's the same as Volkswagen. Um, hooking up with Chrysler to do the Rutan instead of the next, and you know another Eurovan. Um, just yeah. like looking at the economics of of going into that single market with a product versus rebadging somebody else's, I, I, I can see that. So I must have, I needed to think about it a little bit more deeply. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Well, right now you know it's Thursday night as we're recording this. Um, tomorrow morning, Friday morning. Uh, Ford's at, Ford and VW are actually making this announcement, and I'll I'll be at the press conference in Manhattan uh, for that. And then afterwards, I'm going to have a chance to talk talk to Joe Henricks, the president of Ford, um, to uh, to you know dig try to dig in a little bit more into the EV side of this thing. Um, and so we'll have a better idea what's what's going what their plans are after that. I hope. Um, but there's also another part to this deal. You know, so it's not just about electrification; it's also about automated driving. And uh, this is right now, this is actually the much bigger part of this deal, um, which is that Volkswagen has decided to invest in Argo AI, which is the startup company that Ford made a big investment in in early 2017. Um, it's, uh, you know, they're based in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, they launched in late 2016, um, led by uh, uh, Brian Seleski and Pete Rander and uh, Brett Browning. And Brian's the CEO. He's uh, formerly of uh, Waymo. Uh, before that, he uh, worked on some autonomous uh, trucking, mining truck applications for um, Caterpillar. And then he led the software development side of the uh, the Carnegie Mellon team that won the twenty seven or two thousand seven DARPA uh, Urban Challenge with uh, uh, with a Chevy Tahoe, an autonomous Chevy Tahoe, and. Um, Pete uh, was previously at Uber ATG, and before that, he was at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and you know, they they are they have been Ford bought a majority stake in Argo in early 2017, and uh, Argo has been developing the production automated driving platform that's going to go in Ford's vehicles starting in 2021. Um, now. Volkswagen has also bought into Argo, and they will also be using Argo's technology in their upcoming automated vehicles. Um, Ford's Ford's vehicle is going to launch first, uh, but then uh, VW's will follow at some point after that. Um, so VW is investing two point six billion into Argo, a billion in cash, and then they are also adding in their uh, AID group, which is their autonomous intelligent drive group, which is based in Munich. Um, that group is going to become uh, Argo uh, uh, Argo AI Europe, uh, so that'll be Argo's European division, and they will be merging their work. So they, you know, the the people and the intellectual property uh, from the AID group uh, will be part of Argo going forward, and uh, so you know, I think you know this is this is a real validation of. Argo's approach to the problem, their technology, and and their the way they're doing the way they're doing this, the way they're developing this stuff, um, you know, because Volkswagen 
previously was working with Aurora, which was Chris Ermson's company. Chris uh, was uh, Brian's boss at, at uh, the Google self-driving car project in Waymo uh, before both of them left there. Um, and before that, uh, he also worked with, he led the, the Carnegie Mellon team that, that uh, Brian worked on. Um, so, you know, the, this, that's a very capable company. Um, but Volkswagen, you know, for whatever reason, has decided to go with Argo. Uh, you know, I guess they felt more comfortable with Argo. And, and you know, probably part of it is, you know, by having a, a significant equity stake, they've, they've got a little more control, a little more influence on it as well. Um, you know, more, more, a bigger stake, you know, you know, putting their money into this, uh, rather than just, you know, getting, you know, a supplier to provide them with the stuff, you know, they actually own some of it. Um, and so Ford and, uh, Volkswagen each own the same relative share. The overall valuation of Argo has been set at $7 billion. Uh, they each own a minority stake and together their combined stake is still, still amounts to a majority of the 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 ownership of Argo and then the Argo team owns the rest of it Brian and Pete and and Brett and then you know their their employees uh, with their stock options own the rest of it um, so you know this is this is a big deal because you know like you said you know with with the electrification you know by combining their their efforts together they can spread out uh, the costs over more vehicles you know so instead of you know, each of them spending a comparable amount of money to develop their own automated driving systems. Now they can de- develop one automated driving system. They can both leverage that and get more scale more quickly and, you know, reduce the overall development cost of the technology. And, you know, for, for Argo, you know, <clears throat> they'll be expanding into Europe, you know, and, you know, testing in more environments and that'll help, you know, speed up the development of their system, uh, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, the same, you know, so the same, same kind of principle applies to the EV side, you know, with getting more scale from their development um, as it does on the autonomous side. So what does Argo do differently? Like you mentioned that, you know, this sort of validates Argo's approach. What do they do differently than, than the other autonomous players? Um, at a fundamental level, you know, it's, it's not that different from the other leading players, you know, they're all using, you know, multiple different types of sensors, radar, LIDAR cameras. Um, they did buy a LIDAR company last year called Princeton Lightwave that has some very interesting LIDAR technology. And um, they're going to have uh, running prototypes of that on, for, on vehicles. You know, Princeton had the their, their systems that they were using in other applications previously, but they're going to have um, vehicle prototypes running uh, later this summer. Um, and the, one of the advantages to their, you know, to that LIDAR system is, you know, has the potential for longer range capability. Um, you know, so that means higher speed capabilities, uh, with the, with the LIDAR, um, you know, and just their, 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 I think their, their general approach to developing the software, you know, from a hardware perspective, you know, what, um, what, uh, Argo is doing is not dramatically different from, from others. But their, I think their approach to the software, um, you know, is something that uh, that Volkswagen apparently liked a lot. Um, you know, they're they're doing a mix of um, AI type systems, machine learning systems, machine learning algorithms, and more traditional deterministic algorithms. You know, so rules based algorithms, using a combination of those as needed, and and mixing them in together, um, which 
gives you a way to, you know, to better validate the performance of the system to make sure it's actually working. Because one of the things about machine learning systems, it's hard to actually understand what's really going on inside that algorithm. You can't just walk through the code and, and understand exactly, you know, feed something in and know exactly what's going to come out. Um, it's more of a black box. And so by breaking it down into smaller chunks and mixing and matching, you know, for the different parts, you know, the, the different approaches to the software within that, you know, where whatever is best for a particular function, um, you can um, you can have a system that should be more robust and safer and you know, more reliable. Um, you know, and there, uh, Argo is also doing some interesting things with you know, one of the challenges around around uh, automated driving is the prediction part of it. So you've got to take the sensor signals and you know, perceive what's going on around the vehicle, but then you have to predict what all those targets you're seeing around you, the other vehicles and other road users like pedestrians and cyclists, uh, pick, and predict what they're going to do before you can plan your path to, to drive down the road. And, you know, Argo is doing some interesting stuff with their prediction, uh, their prediction algorithms. All right. Well, I mean, more more self-driving cars is going to push the, the state of the art. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come at the expense of the cars that we drive ourselves. <laughs> I remain yeah. a skeptic. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with being a skeptic. The other exciting thing that happened this week was, I think it was this week, maybe it was last week, either way, it's been relatively uh, short time since you actually drove the 2020 Hyundai Palisade. It was actually about two days uh, and so ago. This, Okay, so two days ago. That's good. Uh, this is the you know we've we've had I think all of us have had experience with the Kia Telluride, and so this is the same vehicle. It's just the Hyundai version, so it's a bit more luxurious. It's also distinctively styled, uh, as is the Telluride. They're they're visually pretty different, uh, so that's a plus. Um, and if the Telluride is any benchmark, uh, the the Palisade. Must have been impressive. Uh, yeah, it was very impressive. Um, you know, it's it's very quiet. Um, it's very spacious. You know, it's it's big. Uh, you know, it's a three full. You know, they call it a midsize three row, but you know, I think it's it's really more of a full size three row. Um, you know, I climbed into the back row, the third row, and you know, it's you know, I could sit back there comfortably. You know, it's it's a little yeah. bit you know knees up position you know the seat you know is fairly close to the floor but i could still sit in there reasonably comfortably uh i had enough leg room uh in there enough headroom um and you know there's for you know kids you know like for you know eight to ten twelve year olds you know third you know early teens um you can fit three kids back there um without too much difficulty so uh, you know, you can have up to, seating for up to eight in there. You know, this this thing you know has a very premium feel to it, uh, very premium look to it. You know, really nice in, inside, uh, nice materials, especially on the limited trim level. Um, yeah, quilted leather. Yeah, you know, and uh, only one powertrain, uh, the three point eight liter V six with an eight speed automatic transmission, front wheel drive or all wheel drive, um, and uh, surprisingly fuel efficient. Um, you know, on the, the return leg, you know, coming back to uh, our starting point, um, you know, we did some highway driving, average 26 miles per gallon with this thing. Um, that's, that's great. I mean, consider it's the size of a Tahoe. Yeah, almost. Yeah. It's a little bit smaller, I think, than a Tahoe, but, 
It was pretty close. Um, you know, it's got 5,000 pound towing capacity. Um, you know, the ride quality, the balance between ride and handling is surprisingly good. You know, it's very, very level body control as you're going through corners, um, which I was uh, driving with Stephanie Brindley. And, uh, you know, she's driven the, the uh, Telluride. I haven't driven the Telluride yet. And I'll, I'll be curious to discuss with discuss this with Rebecca uh, next time because she's she's also driven both the Telluride and the Palisade. Um, but one of the things that Stephanie was mentioning about the Telluride is it's got a lot more body roll than the Palisade does. Um, oh, that's interesting because the, the Telluride, yeah, I was going to – it's another one of those vehicles that lets you know when you've overdone it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so that, that's interesting that the Hyundai is a little bit more level. Yeah, you know, and you know, the talking with Trevor Lai, who's the uh, product planning manager for SUVs at at Hyundai. Um, you know, they the approach that you know that they took with the um, with the with the Palisade uh, versus the Telluride. You know, the Telluride is a little bit more traditional SUV kind of feel to it, and the Palisade, you know, is you know, a little more modern um upscale more premium feel to it uh so they tried to keep it a little more buttoned down um you know and and i think it i think it shows you know i mean it certainly looks way more premium than you know the vehicle it replaces is the old santa fe xl uh the, the long wheelbase three uh three row santa fe uh this replaces that in the lineup and right. and so so they go from something that was like fine yeah it was okay but but Everybody was like, what's yeah. that to something that is going to, you know, people are going to see it and they're going to say, what's that? And in a totally different way, because <laughs> it, it really stands out styling. wise. Yeah, no, it does. It looks great. Um, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, even though it's it's actually slightly smaller than the Explorer on the inside, it actually feels a little roomier. You know, and I think that's a function of you know a couple of things. Um, you know, just kind of the the way it's laid out. Um, you know, it it feels like you have a little more space in there, and the um, the greenhouse of the Explorer has a little more tumble home, uh, whereas the mm. you know so that the you know as you go up to the roof, you know the the glass kind of tilts in a little bit uh, towards the roof line, whereas the uh, the Palisade is a little more vertical on the sides. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a little bit boxier greenhouse to it, which makes it feel a little, you know, a little roomier and more open. Um, you know, which is, you know, the, on paper, the, the dimensions look, don't look that different, but just the feel of it, it, it does feel roomier. Um, so it's, yeah, it's interesting well, they, they use a lot of, they use a lot of horizontal elements in the interior yeah. too. I was looking at that design. Um, a couple of wacky things too, though, the, so the, the uh, Telluride has just a traditional shifter uh, that, you know, the thing you pull it back and uh -huh. it, it operates like shifters have for decades. Uh, the the Palisade, on the other hand, has like a, a push button kind of thing with multiple buttons and stuff. Yeah, it's um, kind of like Honda's approach, except that, you know, without having a mix and match of buttons that you push or pull, you know, they're all just push buttons. Um, you know, which I think is a better approach, uh, certainly more consistent than the, than the Honda approach. See, I, I actually like, I, and I was surprised that I actually, I like the Honda's approach. It's different, but it makes sense. And what I like about it is that it, it's that combo of, of actions you need to take. So you, you learn very quickly that like, oh, for reverse, I've got to pull that little, you know, I've got to pull it back. 
to get reverse. Uh, so it's a different action versus just stabbing a different button on the quadrant. So you can you can operate it without looking at it once you get used to it. And I don't know that that's the case with the Palisade. Yeah, the Palisade is is more like you know a lot of the other like more like the Lincoln approach where you know it's all they're all push you know they're all push buttons you know basically a, a row of push buttons with uh, for drive neutral and and reverse and then park is off to one side so it's sort of a a, a T shape you know horizontal or you know tilt, tilt a T tilted ninety degrees on its side with the park on the on the side. All right. Well. we'll- We'll hear stories about people messing that up and the cars rolling. Of course, away, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> what did you think of the uh, the video? So it has mirrors, right? Rearview mirror cameras um, that display in the uh, instrument panel. Yeah, the, so, the, the Genesis G70 also has the same thing. Oh, okay. I didn't realize yeah. that. Um, um, what did you What did you think of that? It seems weird to me because you're going to be looking at the instrument panel. It's that's kind of a, a far way to look down off the road uh, to, to see that display. It's neat, but it's also maybe not the best application of that. Yeah, you know, I, I think you know it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a similar concept to like the Honda Lane Watch system. You know, where the, that they used instead of blind spot monitors. This one still has you know the blind spot monitors. Uh, the radar radar sensors in the rear corners to alert you if there's somebody in the blind spot. But when you turn on the turn signal, you know it's using the cameras that are embedded in the mirrors that give you your surround view. You know, but it's also looking back. You know, to give you the the view um, of what your you know if your mirrors are aimed properly, what you should be seeing back there in that blind spot area um, with with the cameras and displaying it. Uh, in the middle of, you know, either the speedometer or attack, you know, depending on which side. So if you put on your left, uh, your left turn signal, it'll show up on the left side of the cluster and the right turn signal shows up on the right side of the cluster. You know, it's, it's a little gimmicky. It doesn't hurt. Um, I don't know how much it really benefits. Um, but you know, it's, it's neither here nor there. It's clever. It's, it's a, because we can thing. So there, there's that. Um, we're going to see more of that kind of stuff. Uh, they'll, they'll eventually find things that, that do work, and they'll get more widely adopted. And it's stuff um, like Lane Watch, Honda kind of discovered that while it it works, people don't use it. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> it doesn't it's not really work that well either. It's not really very useful because the Lane Watch system displays. It's only on the, the right-hand side. It's not on the left. Yeah. And it displays in the, the center display. You know, so you're... Instead of your audio system showing up, it switches when you turn on the turn signal. It sh- the right turn signal. It shows you the display from the camera on the screen instead of your infotainment. Um, you know, and I, it's really not good. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather yeah, I'd rather I got have to a the proper point blind spot monitor system. I'd rather just set my mirrors. Well, I mean, the the <laughs> blind spot monitor, uh, you know, is great for things. You know, I mean, there's there's always going to be things that you no matter how well you set your mirrors, there's going to be areas you might not be able to see. And it also gives you the benefit of cross traffic alert when you're backing out of a parking space, which your mirrors are not going to be able to tell, do anything to help. That's you there. true. I, I do like cross traffic alert. I think that's a great feature. The other thing I like is, um, uh, I think the last car I, I experienced this on was BMW, but they they'll use the individual speakers in the audio system to play the 
the um, the tone. So if you've got something, if you're backing into a parking space or something, and there's there's an obstacle on the left in the rear, it's going to play the the beep from the left rear speaker. And, and conversely, if there's something on the right side, it will it will play it from the right side. Like that's something that it doesn't take any more cognitive load to figure out what it's trying to tell you. And I I love that. I think that's super clever. So more more of that, please, automakers. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the the another approach to that is also, um, you know, the haptic feedback through the seat that GM does, which I think is also an approach that works really well. It'll it'll give you haptic feedback on one side or the other uh, if you're drifting out of the lane or if the blind spot monitor is detecting uh, something. Yeah. Yeah, it's anything that you're that you're providing information, but you're not asking somebody to, to decode it, yeah. where they, they really don't need to think, that's the way to do it. So, uh, I, I I'm sure looking at the Palisade and looking at what everybody else thought of it too, like we're going to predict that this thing's going to have a bright future. Yeah, I think it'll certainly do a lot better than the Santa Fe XL did. Um, you know, I think it, it's going to be a strong competitor, and it and it's very aggressively priced. You know, a maxed out. Uh, Palisade is only, uh, it's like, I think it's like less than $47,000, which, you know, that's such a good you know, deal. It's, it's not, for... it's not as fast as, as a Explorer ST, but it also, you know, you're never going to get it over $50,000, you know? Yeah. And it also, it looks like a million yeah. bucks. That's the no, thing that great. they're really, really good yeah. at. Um, so it looks like it costs, you know, a good 15 or 20 K more. And that's, that. That that holds some water. <laughs> so. All right. Well, I think that that's all of our topics. You know where to find us for feedback. Hit us up, or we'll we'll be uh, recording a new episode, and you'll hear us next week. All right. See you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.